Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning. We've made it to Friday. Great to have you company, no matter where you're listening to us. On Starter FM, uh, the iHeartRadio platform, TuneIn Radio, and of course on the podcast, the Prawncast. Welcome to it, Marcus Paul in the morning. It's the 24th day of June. A busy program on the way this morning. Uh, we'll catch up with some of the biggest stories, and uh, there's a little bit of lighter stuff in there as well. I'll be talking about Margot Robbie's new film, which is called Barbie. <laughs> Yeah, I will. Promise. Anyway, um, before that, though, uh, some serious stuff. I'll go through the the latest with the former New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Barillaro. Uh, Of course, there's a a teacher's strike next week. And there's also a nurse's and midwife strike next week. All of... Excuse me. All of this comes, of course, as yesterday, the Perrottet government put its foot down, promising that illegal protests from unions would now attract a more significant financial penalty. That is 55 grand. Anyway, um, I I don't know what to say about that, apart from the fact that, you know, people really deserve public servants, uh, those that have been at the uh, the front line of COVID and all the rest of it, uh, really do deserve uh, a, a pay increase in line with inflation, at least. Anyway, we'll see uh, how that all unfolds, but we were told that there would be disruptions. Now, of course, the government says it's the union being uh, political. They say it's nothing short of political bastard drill, political activism, and uh, they want to hold the unions to account. Now, I slightly disagree. Uh, Without the unions, God knows what uh, the government would like to get away with paying teachers and nurses and all the rest of them. So there's that. Now, also, uh, a nasty earthquake in Afghanistan. I'll go through the latest detail of that. Uh, John Barillaro's issue. Uh, Now, (laughs) talk about investigating your own issues. Um, The Premier, Dominic Perrottet, announced that there would be an investigation by the Department of Premier and Cabinet into the appointment of the former Deputy Premier, John Barillaro, uh, to that trade uh, job, that plum half a million dollar gig in New York, New York. Well, John, I wouldn't be packing your bags just yet. Anyway, uh, the Premier has announced yet another investigation. There'll be two, one within Parliament itself, uh, an upper house inquiry, and also, um, well, this one really is an independent, but uh, again, I, I just don't know why the Premier needs to... He's going to make it public, that's fine, and you know, I guess in a way there is a bit of, um, you know, a, a bit of making it as transparent as possible, but I don't like the idea of governments investigating themselves. You know, ScoMo's mob did it so often and found nothing there, remember? 
So I, I just don't believe that um, there's no conflict of interest there. So we'll get to that. But also, uh, importantly, yesterday, Chris Minns, the alternative Premier in the state of New South Wales, delivered his budget in reply speech. I think he's looking more and more as a an alternative Premier each and every day. He said it was historic, the largest ever investment in building public preschools in New South Wales history. He said, we won't just make it cheaper to access early childhood education. We will build 100 public preschools so that families can actually get spots. And all within our first term of government. Parents cannot afford to wait until 2030 when the government plan kicks in. That's the Parate government's plan. They need access now. So that was one of the promises. Labor will build 100 new preschools owned by New South Wales. Some of the other plans for the state. Well, bringing back domestic manufacturing in New South Wales by setting minimum local content requirements and creating manufacturing centres of excellence. Also on the tolls, well, toll relief. I think that's going to be a big issue leading into next March's New South Wales general election. So what they want to do is stop the government's toll road privatisation that results in never-ending toll increases. And in doing so, in offering more toll relief, they want to keep the Sydney Harbour Bridge and tunnel in the public's hands. You still pay a toll, but all of that money will then get recycled into more toll relief, which I think is a great idea. They also want to stop the land tax on family homes forever. Uh, That's, of course, the controversial uh, tax to replace stamp duty that Dominique Perrottet is offering. Um, Now, according to Labor and Chris Minns, that will save your home from Dominique Perrottet's obsession with taxing families more. And also, finally, end the rorts and obsession with mass privatisation. So Chris Minn says a Labor government in New South Wales would rule the line in the sand under the government's rorting and privatisation, including by abolishing Tahi. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, watch this space. Um, I think it was a good budget and reply speech, but of course uh, Dominic Perrottet called it weak and offering nothing. Let the games begin. I, I suspect they're already in campaigning mode in the state of New South Wales. Okay, so that's all coming up on the program. Great to have you company on this Friday. Uh, We'll have the latest news on the half hour, courtesy of our friends at Air News, and some great tunes as well to get you in the mood on this Friday. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, let's get into the issues on this Friday morning. Great to have your company, Marcus Paul, in the morning. Well, we're told that a high-profile barrister hired to represent Lisa Wilkinson after her Logie speech contributed to the delay of the trial of the man accused of raping ex-Liberal staff of Brittany Higgins could be costing Miss Wilkinson up to $10,000 a day. Surely her and Pirate Pete can afford that. Yep, it's a lot of money, isn't it? President of the Australian Bar Association, Matthew Collins, was hired to represent the 10 Network and Wilkinson hours after he appeared on the 7 Network Sunrise program, saying it was a serious possibility authorities might charge the television presenter with contempt of court. 
Now, Dr Collins criticised Wilkinson's Logie speech as ill-advised in the interview after the ACT Supreme Court delayed the start of the trial, which had been due to start on June 27. Now, look, I <laughs> I obviously have a, a bit of a an issue with uh, with Miss Wilkinson um, opening up uh, her mouth. Uh, at the Logies because I believe obviously she's made it all about her and she has effectively put the uh, the trial of Bruce Lerman in jeopardy and you know his barristers rightly argue that how on earth can this bloke you know who must be assumed innocent until proven otherwise how on earth can he get a fair trial you know, when this whole trial by media has gone on. And, you know, when I say this, I mean no disrespect to Brittany Higgins, and uh, of course, um, you know, but I, I always thought she should have gone to the police first. Anyway, um, and obviously, uh, unlike the mob that I work for, Channel 10 are supporting Lisa Wilkinson. Uh, lesser people, lesser journalists, probably, like me, would be out on their ass. Anyway, top-of-the-line barristers like Dr Collins cost between 8 and 10 grand a day if they have to appear in court. Previously, this Dr Collins has acted in a number of significant media law cases, including actress Rebel Wilson's defamation case against Bauer Media. Lawyers acting for Wilkinson have promised the court the television personality will not publicly discuss the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins after her Logie speech caused the delay of the trial. I mean, it's amazing that she has to actually put it in writing and promise. You know, a, a journalist with her level of expertise and so-called experience. All right. The ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, has confirmed he received a letter from Channel 10 lawyers with the undertaking and has also sought a similar commitment from the Australian radio network which broadcasts Jonesy and Amanda. The broadcast presenters were criticised by ACT Supreme Court Justice Lucy McCullum this week for their public comments on Miss Higgins' case, which led to the delay of the trial originally due to start on June 27. Bruce Lerman has pleaded not guilty to sexually assaulting Miss Higgins inside Parliament House in 2019. At a hearing yesterday, Lerman's lawyer, Steve Wybrow, asked for the trial to be delayed until the start of 2023, arguing the bushfires are still burning as a result of Wilkinson's Logie speech. But Ms McCallum rejected his request and rescheduled the four-week trial to now start on October 4. Three months, she said, is a significant period during which attention to prejudicial issues fades in the minds of jurors. My assessment is that three months coupled with what I anticipate will be a dampening of the debate as a result of the judgment and communication I've received since that will enable the trial to be conducted fairly. The court also heard Mr Drumgold was seeking to ensure several upcoming political books either did not mention the case or had their publication dates held until after the trial. Miss McCallum said it would be a pretty thin book if you took out everything that related to the allegations made by Miss Higgins, which are yet to be tested in court. 
Now, there was no discussion of holding Wilkinson in contempt of court, but Miss McCallum was scathing of the television presenter as she further explained her reason for delaying the trial. She said yesterday, the real concern was the immediacy in impanelling a jury with a list of witnesses that included Miss Wilkinson in a week where no one could fail to have connected her name with success in publishing a true story. Uh, the Justice said her reading coverage of the case this week in the wake of Wilkinson's speech had rightly kept the importance of ensuring a fair trial. She said the publicity this week has focused sharply on the very fact that was being overlooked, which was that a man is facing trial for a serious offence and he's entitled to the presumption of innocence. Mr Drumgold raised concerns about several books after uh, about politics, rather, he believed to be due for release this year, including titles authored by journalists Samantha Maiden, Peter Van Onslen and Nicky Saver. He suggested to Miss McCallum he would contact the authors to confirm if they were writing books and ask them to either undertake not to address issues of subjudice related to the case or to delay the publishing of the works until after the trial. Now, Miss McCallum, the Justice agreed, saying as long as it was understood what was meant by subjudice, as she was not confident that it was until this week. What is meant by the term subjudice is effectively what I said in my judgment. An allegation that has been made remains untested by law, so that any commentary about the maker of the allegation, the circumstances in which she made it, her own credibility, the number of times in which she said it, and the terms in which she said it, all of those are matters that are now before the court. Because what is before the court is the obligation that remains to be tested. It comes after her unwise speech contributed to derailing the trial of the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins. Legal experts say television presenter Lisa Wilkinson could potentially face contempt of court charges. Uh, of course, Wilkinson's been criticised by legal experts and television peers after her comments at Sunday's awards night caused the trial, due to start in the ACT Supreme Court next week, to be indefinitely delayed. Now, Bruce Lerman has pleaded not guilty to sexually assaulting Miss Higgins inside Parliament House in 2019. Former Channel 10 weather presenter Tim Bailey slammed his colleague in a brutal tweet on Wednesday. It read, Hey Lisa, pull your head in. I know this might be difficult because it is a very big head, but please try, Bailey said in a now-deleted post. Now, 10 News anchor Sandra Sully liked a tweet by show business reporter Peter Ford, which said, such serious consequences from Lisa Wilkinson, if only she'd stuck to silly stories like the paparazzi who stalked her on Chapel Street. <laughs> Sunrise presenter Natalie Barr has also weighed in on the case, saying Seven would often consult their lawyers before putting a story to air. Would this have been the case were Channel 10's lawyers should have stepped in and lawyered this speech, is what Natalie Barr said. 
Anyway, Australian Bar Association President Matthew Collins said it was a serious possibility Wilkinson may be charged with contempt of court. He said yesterday in the media, it's certainly possible that authorities will be looking at the speech that she made to the Logies and assessing that speech against the standard that applies in this branch of law. That standard is, did anything that she do have a tendency to interfere with the administration of justice? This is Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, we know how dire housing affordability is, and I caught up with this story yesterday. A coastal New South Wales council is begging 7,500 holiday homeowners from Canberra and Sydney to make their properties available to renters to help ease that region's housing crisis. It's down in uh, the Eurobidala. That Shire Council Mayor, Matthew Hatcher, has written to a total of around 8,000 non-resident ratepayers who own homes along the south coast. In the letter, he urges them to consider renting them out for one to two years while long-term solutions can be established. Now, he said yesterday, this councillor Hatcher, we know that a lot of Canberrans, and I was one of them, use this area as their holiday destination every summer, and there's no doubt about it. We want you down here. We need your money. We need you to be a tourist for this region. But this is a social disaster of epic proportions. It's a pitch for dignity and humanity. We can't wait years for homes to be built. We need to address the lack of rental properties in our community right now. Around 4,000 homes in the Eurobidala Shire, that's an area that stretches from South Juris in the north to past Tilba Tilba in the south, they're all owned by Sydney residents, around 4,000 of them. A further 3,500 are owned by Canberrans. 280 are owned by Victorians and several hundred more are owned by people who live interstate or overseas. Now, when 500 homes were lost in the Eurobidala Shire during the Black Summer bushfires back in 2020, the council made a similar plea to holiday homeowners across the country. More than 80 homes were placed onto the market, according to the mayor, which is good news. But he wants people to repeat that generosity. It would be a significant help. Now, the shortage of affordable rental accommodation in the area, we're told, has left more than 50 people living at a campground near Maruya because they have no alternative option. More than a third of all houses in the Eurobidala are the second homes of people who permanently reside outside the area. Really? Well, that's an incredible statistic. Let me repeat it. More than a third of all homes in the Eurobidala are the second properties of people who permanently live outside the joint. Now, the Mayor, Mr Hatcher, said he wanted to avoid going down a regulatory route like that being pursued in Byron Bay where local councils reduce the number of days homes can be made available for short-term holiday stays. He said it's not an ideal thing for local council to do because we obviously want people investing and we need tourist accommodation. But we're at a sticky spot. He said some tourism businesses could not find enough staff to operate because there were no homes for them to move into. 
So he said he's hoping that his letter will bring about enough supply so that they don't have to go to that next level. All right, well... Maruya real estate agent Samantha Sheether has told the ABC there were hardly any properties on the market right now for renters in the Urubidala. She said it made good business sense for landlords to have permanent tenants rather than use to their homes as short-stay accommodation during the peak holiday period. She told the ABC, you've got the four-week rent which is lodged with the bond board, you've got the work and personal reference checks, and you're not doing an inventory check on every cup and saucer in the house. It's not a party house, and you've got a stable income with routine inspections. So obviously, she is, you know, bestowing the virtues of renting out these homes permanently. But she also said some holiday rental owners were hesitant because of new rules protecting long-term tenants as a result of the pandemic. She said, I'm talking to a lot of potential landlords that are still scared off by the COVID moratorium on tenant evictions and worried they won't be able to finance their own mortgage because they'll get someone in and won't be able to kick them out when they stop paying the rent. And look, that is a, a valid concern. She also said she did not blame people for wanting to get a return on their investment, but she is hopeful those who could afford to rent out their homes would do so. Well, what do you make of it all? I mean, obviously not everyone can do it. And not every house will come back on the market for rent. But I think it's a good start. And it's a shame that it's come to that down in that beautiful area of the south coast of New South Wales. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Friday morning. It is the 24th day of June. Great to have you with us uh, here on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and maybe you're listening to us on the Prawncast. If you are, please give us a share on social media. We'd really appreciate it. Now, I put a post up on our uh, our socials yesterday on this story, and, you know, it's kind of like the government, again, making inquiries into itself or investigating its own, well, I don't want to say misdeeds yet, but Premier Dominic Perrottet has ordered a review of John Barillaro's New York job as MPs voted, of course, to suspend the appointment just the other day. The offer for a public servant to take over as Trade Commissioner was terminated before John Barillaro was hired for the role. Now, Mr Barillaro's New York Post is hanging by a thread. So the Premier, Dominic Perrottet, yesterday ordered a review of John Barillaro's plum half a million dollar trade role following a political firestorm that was triggered by the former Deputy Premier's getting the job signed off uh, that he created. (laughs) Anyway, Mr Perrottet yesterday revealed that he had ordered senior public servant Michael Cooch Trotter to review the decision. I've directed the Secretary of the Department of Premier and Cabinet to conduct a review. He will provide that report to me. I will review it and I'll make it public. All right, well, uh, look, I have to say that that means there will be obviously some transparency, but I just, I still don't like the idea of, you know, governments looking uh, into themselves, if you like. Uh, I just think there's a conflict of interest, surely. 
This could have been an independent inquiry premier. Anyway, the New South Wales Upper House on Wednesday, of course, passed a motion, as we reported yesterday on Wednesday, the Upper House passed a motion calling to halt the appointment of the former Deputy Premier as the Senior Trade and Investment Commissioner to the Americas, a role that he signed off on creating when he was still in Parliament. <laughs> you know, and again, you talk about conflict of interest. I'm sorry, but... The motion passed 20 to 18 and called for his appointment to be suspended until the Public Accountability Committee holds an inquiry and reports to Parliament. So effectively now there are two inquiries. It came amid media reports a former senior public servant by the name of Jenny West had already been offered the job only for it to be rescinded and offered to Mr Barillaro instead. So why was it rescinded? Why did Jenny West receive apparently some compensation payment? And how much was that compensation payment? We're entitled to know. It's our money. She's a public servant. I'm not blaming Miss West. However, the Premier on Wednesday said he had received advice that she was not offered the job. All right, well, uh, the truth is out there somewhere. The Chief Executive of Investment New South Wales pulled the offer for the public servant to take over as Trade Commissioner before hiring John Barillaro for the role. Mr Perrottet revealed that the agency's Chief Executive, Amy Brown, pulled Jenny West's offer after she was offered the job of being a Trade Commissioner. Now, Ms Brown previously reported to Mr Barillaro in his former government role and was actually on the panel when he was interviewed for the trade role. <laughs> you know, again, conflicts of interest. Do they mean nothing to the Perrottet government? Anyway, the Premier said that under the Act governing the appointment, he could not legally intervene in the hiring process. He said most of them, applicants, aren't suitable candidates, and as such, a separate recruitment process was undertaken. That process was independent and led by a third-party recruiter. Well, it's a shame your inquiry won't be independent and led by a third-party, Mr Premier, because it damn well should be. Anyway, and I think Stuart Ayres, the Trade Minister, is involved in all of this as well. He told the media he did not solicit Mr Barillaro's application to get him the job. He said he did not intervene, but apparently <laughs> he signed off on it. Mr Ayres denied as well that Mr Barillaro was his captain's pick for the role. Okay, uh, of course, Dominic Perrottet also backed the appointment of the former Nationals letters to the role, saying former politicians being appointed to high-level trade roles wasn't uncommon. Yeah, well, jobs for the boys aren't. Of course not. But surely, in a worldwide search to fill this role, there could have been somebody without the baggage that the former Deputy Premier of this state brings. That's just my opinion. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back. Friday morning with Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, Afghanistan. Nasty earthquake there the other day. And it's worth asking the question, 
Why is that region so vulnerable to earthquakes? As you know, more than a thousand people were tragically killed after a powerful 6.1 quake struck a town in Afghanistan. This happened early on Thursday, yesterday morning. It was the deadliest quake in the country in 20 years. The Taliban's supreme leader has appealed for international aid, but what help is on the way? Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. The earthquake struck in a province called Pakita, P-A-K-I-T-A. It's around 44 kilometres from the southeast city of Kost, near the border with Pakistan. Experts put it put the depth of the quake at just 10 kilometres. So it's a shallow earthquake and they tend to cause the most damage. Um, Here's what else we know about the disaster that struck the rural mountainous region. In addition to the more than a thousand people who were killed, there are reports another 1,500 were injured, at least 2,000 homes have been destroyed. Homes are typically constructed of stone and mud brick. Recent rain in the area has caused landslides and made access very difficult. Now, the province where the quake struck had a population of around 775,000 people. It's a lot. The quake was felt as well some 500 kilometres away by 119 million people across Afghanistan, Pakistan and India. That's according to the European Seismological Agency. So it was a big quake. Oh dear, these people. I mean, a lot of them as well, of course. You know, um, you know, they they don't have much. Not much more than the clothes on their back, and they have a subsistence living, and it's just awful. It really is. Well, why is Afghanistan so vulnerable to earthquakes? I mean, this will be the seventh quake that has killed more than a hundred people. since the early 90s and it's the deadliest in as I mentioned two decades the country has a long history of earthquakes many in the mountainous Hindu Kush region bordering Pakistan Afghanistan is particularly vulnerable to earthquakes because it's where the Eurasoan Arabian and Indian tectonic plates meet it's also on the Alpide belt which is an expanse of mountain ranges that's prone to earthquake activity. Death tolls have been worsened by the remote locations of many quakes and decades of war, of course, have left infrastructure in dangerous condition. I mean, these poor people, you know, affected by civil war, international war, and, you know, having the Taliban rule over them as well, and now this. Well, how has the Taliban responded? The disaster has posed a new test for Afghanistan's Taliban rulers and relief agencies already struggling with the country's multiple humanitarian crises. The Taliban supreme leader, I'm not even gonna pronounce this dude's name, I've got no idea. Akunzada, maybe that's close. Anyway, he almost never appears in public He's pleaded with the international community and humanitarian organisations to help the Afghan people affected by this great tragedy and to spare no effort. All right, well, look, I think that's something that most of the world will do. 
regardless of the fact that these poor people are ruled by this ruthless regime. Um, Let's just hope that uh, the death toll doesn't continue to climb. Uh, Now, other countries are responding. Pakistan will send food, tents, blankets and other essentials. And India has also come forward and said that they will help. Uh, Meanwhile, the US State Department says it wasn't sure of any request for American assistance from Afghanistan's Taliban government after the quake. They expect, this is the US, they expect the humanitarian response to the disaster to be a topic of conversation between Taliban and US officials in the coming days. Now, Australia, our Foreign Minister Penny Wong has described the disaster as heartbreaking, acknowledging the local Afghan community has lost many relatives and loved ones. And now the Senator, Penny Wong, says Australia will work with partner nations to respond to the humanitarian emergency caused by this earthquake in Afghanistan. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Friday. Now, we know that um, our airports have been struggling. Uh, We know that airlines aren't what they used to be, in particular the national carrier. I won't go into all the details here of as to why I think Qantas is a basket case. Um, I just think it needs new and better management, as my friend Michael West from Michael West Independent Media pointed out in a brilliant article the other day. I mean, Qantas has a severe culture problem. None of the workers like the management. And I'm sorry, but that bloke who, you know, uh, the leprechaun is what they call him. I probably shouldn't say that, whatever. You know, their chief executive, he's very unpopular, even though, you know, he still commands a, what what does he get, what does he pay himself these days? 10 million bucks a year? Not bad after you've sacked 4,000 workers, you know, and have basically gorged on corporate welfare from taxpayers. I've said before, and I mean this, every single bloody taxpayer in Australia should be given a first-class airfare from Qantas and Alan Joyce considering we've kicked the tin so much for the place. Anyway, here's here's another horror show. Qantas has lost a woman's bag. All right, that's bad enough. But a mum's ashes were inside. A woman is non-functional with distress, following a mistake from Qantas after she flew into Sydney from London. A woman says her partner is distressed after Qantas lost a bag containing her mum's ashes. The couple flew from Heathrow Airport to Sydney on Saturday morning, but were still waiting for the bag to arrive four days later. Now, I have loved ones that have just uh, flown back uh, on board Qantas. They went to London Heathrow on QF1, they returned on QF2, and it costs a pretty penny. It costs a hell of a lot of money, particularly if you go business class, which is, you know, or, or you know, just out of economy. It costs a lot. The least the airline can do is not lose your freaking bags. Anyway, Women's Community Shelters Chief Executive and Domestic Violence New South Wales Chair Annabelle Daniel expressed her frustration on Twitter after she and her partner had not heard back from the airline. Hey, Qantas, my partner's bag is four days late from QF2 on Saturday morning. 
She tweeted this on Wednesday night. It has her mother's ashes in it. She wasn't able to see her mum before she died or attend the funeral in 2020 due to the pandemic. No response from your website. Could you help more, please? In subsequent replies to other shocked Twitter users, Miss Daniel explained how badly her partner had been affected by this horror show of a situation. My partner was close to a mum and just devastated she couldn't travel with her when she uh, travelled to be with her when she died. Well, I know how that feels. Watching your mum's funeral on Zoom is gut-wrenching. I watch dads, I know how it feels. I mean, it's awful. Let alone what's happened now. She's not the kind of person to make a fuss, but this compounds the grief all over again. She's quite non-functional with distress. I very much hope this is sorted out. She's so anxious... And this has just been a horror show. Now, in response, (laughs) Qantas on Twitter said it was sorry to hear what happened. And they asked Miss Daniel to direct message them. uh, That is uh, the baggage file reference and the passenger's name so they could look into it. Well, it shouldn't take that. It shouldn't take somebody with a little bit of a profile, you know, to take to Twitter to get an issue like this resolved. Losing bags is bad enough. In a statement to NCA Newswire, the airline spokesperson apologised for the extremely distressing situation and said the bag was being sent to the woman late yesterday. We understand this is an extremely distressing situation for this customer and have apologised for the delay in getting their bags to them. Uh, The bag is being couriered, apparently, or was couriered yesterday, late yesterday, and they were in contact with the family and have been providing updates on the location. Uh, Now, apparently uh, Heathrow Airport has had baggage issues over recent days and that led to tens of thousands of misplaced bags. Now, well, okay. I guess in fairness, I did see that and I did hear that. Um, (laughs) They've got problems at all airports, to be perfectly honest. I don't know why. We never used to have these issues. It's a staffing situation. You know, airlines, with the, the, the price of jet fuel, uh, you think you pay a lot up at the servo. You know, airlines are trying to cut corners and, you know, save costs where they can. Um, look what happened to Qantas, you know. Mr. Joyce decided that he would privatise or outsource, if you like, baggage handlers, and how's that worked for them? Anyway, the situation has been met with anger and empathy from other Twitter users who were stunned by what had happened. I won't go through all of those, but anyway, Qantas chief executive, Alan Joyce, acknowledged they are not delivering the service that we would expect to do. Well, you haven't been doing that for a while, Alan, and I'm sorry, that should fall on you. And if Qantas are not delivering the service that they should do, then you need to perhaps take a pay cut and maybe re-employ. I know there's a court case going on at the moment with baggage handlers, but, you know, he needs to... Yeah, whatever. Australia's airports have been marred by repeated issues of cancelled, delayed flights, long lines and lost baggage, something Mr Joyce attributed to the impacts of restarting after COVID. Remember when he blamed everybody else but... You know, his own airline. Oh, passengers just aren't match fit yet. Bullshit. You just don't have enough staff because you laid them all off. 
Anyway, uh, Mr Joyce apparently spoke to Perth Radio saying it's a process of restarting the aviation industry that has been grounded for two years and there are resource constraints across the whole supply chain of airports. Um, Airlines catering across manufacturers and supply parts. Now, that's no excuse for a customer that doesn't have their bags, doesn't get their flight going on time. We recognise this and we're putting in a huge amount of resources to making sure it gets better as fast as possible. All right, Mr Joyce also said in another interview that there were 18,000 bags stranded at Heathrow Airport over last weekend. That's a hell of a lot of bags. 18,000 bags. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Friday morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Two uh, people with probably uh, the biggest profiles on the earth. Uh, There's always speculation about their health, given their elderly ages. Uh, One is... (laughs) Well, I think 20-odd years older than the other, but still. Uh, now, Queen Elizabeth II, Her Majesty, uh, she was apparently seen the other day sans walking stick, standing upright and, um, you know, greeting guests at Buckingham Palace. So apparently she's doing okay, which is great news. Not so much the other person, the Pope. Now, Pope Francis... There's speculation that the 85-year-old... Oh, okay, he's 85. I thought he was in this. Anyway, he's 85. Uh, Prince, uh, the um, Queen Elizabeth II, of course, 96. So 11 years difference. But speculation is mounting that the pontiff will resign. His latest appearance only adding fuel to that fire. Pope Francis has been pictured help, being helped to his feet amid rumours that, you know, he'll probably pass on the robes. The 85-year-old had to be helped out of his seat and back into his wheelchair after his weekly audience with the public in St Peter's Square on Wednesday this week, local time. The pontiff can be seen gripping onto the prefect of the uh, pontifical house, Monsignor Leonardo Sapienza, as well as getting assistance from an aide. Anyway, he remained in his wheelchair at a separate event at the Vatican later in the day. I'm just looking at some photos. Yeah, he does look like he obviously requires some assistance. So all of this is fueling the rumour mill, um, along with a postponed African trip. Yeah. Anyway, hobbled by pain in his knee and forced to use a wheelchair in recent weeks, the the Pope has recently postponed a July trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. And he also has an upcoming meeting of Cardinals. So that, obviously, um, is speculating rumours further that he might resign. Does the Pope resign? What does he do? How do, who does he resign to? <laughs> anyway, that move, along with the unusual decision to hold a uh, consistory to name new cardinals during the vacation month of August, triggered intense speculation about his plans for the future, including the most radical that he was planning to step down. Uh, 
but experts have cautioned against assuming a resignation is nigh. In the Pope's entourage, the majority of people don't really believe in the possibility of a resignation, according to a Vatican source. Rumours within the insular Roman Curia, the Catholic Church's powerful governing body, are nothing new and often fuelled by those with an interest, said Italian Vatican expert Marco Politi. I love these names. These rumours are encouraged by the Pope's opponents who are only eager to see Francis leave. Look, the resignation of a Pope was once almost unthinkable. But when Benedict the 16th stood down in 2013, citing his declining physical and mental health, he had set a precedent. In 2014, a year after being elected to replace Pope Benedict, Francis himself told reporters that were his health to impede his functions as Pope, he would consider stepping down too. He, Benedict, opened a door, the door to retired popes, the pontiff said then. More recently in May, as reported by various Italian media, Francis joked about his knee during a closed-door meeting with bishops rather than operate. That's it, rather than have an operation, I'll reside. However, a trip to Canada at the end of July is still on the pontiff's schedule and the Pope continues to receive injections in his knee and physical therapy, according to the Vatican. As a child, Francis had one of his lungs partially removed. Today, besides his knee issue, he suffers recurring sciatic nerve pain. Now, that would be nasty. Okay, well, rumours of a resignation also fled, of course, last year after Francis underwent colon surgery, prompting him to tell a Spanish radio station that the idea hadn't even crossed his mind. But beyond his health, a series of calendared events in upcoming months have some Vatican watchers questioning whether Francis is laying the groundwork for retirement while ensuring that his reforms... That's his reforms to the Catholic Church stay in place. Watch this space. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alright, Thursday morning, great to have you company. Um, I'll get into something just a little lighter soon. Barbie. Yep, uh, more pictures of Australia's darling... Margot Robbie as Barbie have emerged and Ryan Gosling apparently is Ken. I, I don't mind Ryan Gosling. I think he's a pretty good actor. He's funny. Anyway, he and his abdominal muscles have also appeared alongside Australia's Margot Robbie, um, you know, in a, uh, a bit of a promo for the upcoming Barbie film. You watch. It'll be massive. All right. Before that, though. As fixed mortgages end and rates rise, interest rates rise, many risk losing their homes, we're told. Oh dear, there are almost 40% of Australians with mortgages who have locked in ultra-low fixed rates and will roll off them as soon as next year and potentially face a world of financial pain. Sarah Ibrahim spoke to the ABC and she was worried about what will happen when her fixed rate ends in January. Ms Ibrahim and her partner took on a home loan of more than $1.5 million in Sydney with a deposit of 10%. $1.5 million alone for that much? Anyway, she said, we fixed the majority of our mortgage for two years. What? Hang on. 
Back the truck up. What would the monthly repayments be on one and a half million bucks? Even at a low fixed rate, for goodness sake. So she went on to say, we fixed the majority of our mortgage for two years and we assumed that in the next few years, they wouldn't really go up much. She and her husband had been saving for a deposit for years and finally broke into the Sydney property market at the end of 2019. She said it took us years of going to auctions, it took us years of going to inspections and years of savings and lots of bulk shopping and buying secondhand clothes and not buying certain things. We made sacrifices. The couple initially had borrowed with a variable interest rate, but last year shifted to a part variable rate of 2.75% and part fixed rate of 2.15% to have certainty on ongoing repayments. Now, Miss Ibrahim says she relied on repeated statements from the Reserve Bank that interest rates would, no, would not go up until 2024. But now, of course, the RBA has, star, has stated that the cash rate will lift to 2.5% and possibly more until it can get inflation down within its target band of 2 to 3%. For Miss Ibrahim and her family, that means a rise, listen to this, of almost $20,000 a year on their mortgage repayments. <laughs> I hope her and hubby have good jobs. She said it's been really anxiety-inducing to think that interest rates will go up by that much and that we would have to try and weather such a large increase at a time when there are obviously other upward pressures in relation to the cost of living. It's been stressful thinking about it and thinking about how we're going to manage such a loan. It's a big loan, isn't it? For many Australians, that stress has already commenced, sadly, with financial counsellors reporting an uptick in banks trying to repossess people's homes because they've been missing mortgage repayments. And economists fear that coupled with higher costs of living and possible unemployment down the track, the financial system could be at risk. Uh, some banks, you know, are hitting borrowers with eviction notices. Since moratoriums on mortgage repayments, which were introduced, of course, during the pandemic to account for the fact that people had lost or been stood down from their jobs and were not generating enough income, since those moratoriums have been lifted, more Australians have been falling behind on their repayments. Stephanie Tonkin, Director of Mortgage Stress at West Justice, says in the past two months alone, her organisation has seen 60 clients and around half of them have been hit with eviction notices. She says they are now trying to negotiate with their lenders for those clients not to lose their homes. She told the ABC, we're seeing clients coming up to us with a whole range of legal, emotional and financial issues. And we are calling on the banks to take a compassionate approach to this real tsunami of homeowners who are finding themselves at real risk of homelessness. Wow. And she said, we're already seeing banks ramping up their action to enforce mortgage debts and repossess homes already against the background of relatively low interest rates. But with rising cost of living, calling on the we're calling on the banks to take a more compassionate approach. Well... <laughs> We can only hope they do. 
Ms Tonkin notes that many of her clients are still getting back on their feet post-COVID. She wants banks to use evictions, quote, as a last resort and to be understanding of some of the underlying emotional drivers of mortgage stress, be it family violence, gambling, mental ill health, etc. Well, the latest data from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, that's APRA, shows that of $2.2 trillion worth of loans held in March this year, around $9 billion belong to borrowers who are 30 to 89 days overdue on their repayments. This is slightly up over the quarter from $8.4 billion in December 2021, but well down from the $14 billion in March 2019. Now, APRA also provides data on non-performing loans, those that are more than 90 days overdue or where the bank thinks they'll take a loss on the loan. As of March, there was around $10.5 billion in non-performing loans held by owner-occupiers, up from $9.6 billion in March 2019. And mortgagees in possession, uh, that is people whose homes are repossessed by the bank because they have defaulted on their loan, they were valued at around $308 million, down from $705 million in March 2019. Uh, now, the ABC has spoken to all the big four, the Combank, ANZ, Westpac and NAB. Of them, um, the Commonwealth reported that current home loan arrears are at record levels of less than 1%. And one in two borrowers were three months ahead of their repayments. That's according to the Commonwealth Bank. Westpac said more than two thirds of their customers were ahead in their mortgage repayments. And 90-day delinquencies were less than 1%. The NAB said that 70% of its customers were ahead on their mortgage payments, but did not indicate default rates. Well, it paints a slightly different picture, doesn't it, than what APRA does. Uh, People have borrowed to the hilts, and of course, mortgage defaults are at risk of rising. There's no doubt about that. But financial counsellors remain worried that with more people coming off fixed rates and variable rates heading above 5%, all people will default on their home loans. Of course, there is financial counselling available. Uh, make sure, please, whatever you do, you keep the lines of communication open with your lender. That's the best thing that you can do, particularly if you're starting to feel excess mortgage stress. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, Friday morning. Look, we don't, obviously, on uh, Marcus Paul in the morning, we don't do a lot of entertainment type of stories, save on Fridays when, you know, I mention a few things that are happening in the world of entertainment. Uh, Let's face it, we all need a bit of a break from politics and all the heavy news. Uh, This week, couple of things. I want to start with this because I want to head down to Melbourne. But you watch, I'll buy a ticket to Billy Joel's One Night Only in Melbourne, only for the promoter, Dainty, or whoever it is, I think it's Paul Dainty, uh, or his organisation, only for them to probably, once demand hits, you know, (laughs) schedule a show in Sydney or elsewhere as well. Anyway, the Piano Man, who is my ultimate favourite entertainer of all time, Yes, I'll admit it. I'm not afraid or shy to admit that I have seen William Martin Joel, that's Billy Joel, 
Tinkle the Ivories live in concert 15 times. Yep. And I I suspect this will possibly, given his age, uh, this will probably be the last time he comes to Australia. So I want to be there. It's one night only. And uh, when is it? December the 10th? Yeah. In Melbourne at the MCG. Yeah, it'll be a wonderful experience, all right, and tickets will go on sale soon, and I put a, a link up on my Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning, that's for, for Billy Joel, it, I definitely want to be there, uh, I think it'll be a wonderful experience at the MCG, and he's, he's brilliant live, obviously. Now, Margot Robbie has transformed into the ultimate blonde bombshell on the set of the Hollywood movie Barbie. Wearing a hot pink flared leg catsuit, a matching neck scarf, and with her hair in loose Malibu-esque waves, the Australian star was spotted in costume as the character between takes in LA. The 31-year-old, by the way, she's also an executive producer on this Warner Brothers-backed production, which is due out next year and directed by an Oscar nominee by the name of Greta Gerwig. Now, Barbie, the movie, co-stars Ryan Gosling as Ken. Yeah. With a recently released image of Gosling in character going viral, showing him with a very heavy spray tan and peroxide locks, flashing his abs. Well, there you go. Uh, Apparently as well, not that, you know, you really need to know, but it adds adds to it, I guess. He had personalised Ken underwear. Of Barbie, Robbie, previous, this is Margot Robbie, previously has said it comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of nostalgic connections, but with that comes a lot of exciting ways to attack it. People generally hear Barbie and think, I know what that movie is going to be, and then they hear that Greta Gerwig is writing and directing it, and they're like, oh, well, maybe I don't. Robbie added that the Barbie, uh, that Barbie promotes confidence, curiosity and communication throughout a child's journey to self-discovery. Okay. Um, Over the brand's almost 60 years, Barbie has empowered kids to imagine themselves in aspirational roles from a princess to a president. (laughs) All right, well, there you go. Barbie co-stars America Ferreira, uh, Kate McKinnon, Will Ferrell is also going to be in there as well. Wow, what's Will Ferrell playing? Doesn't say here. Anyway, well done, uh, because I love Margot Robbie and we like an Australian success story, and she is certainly that in Hollywood. Uh, Barbie is due to be released on July the 21st, 2023. Ah, it's a year away. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I'm sure it will do well. Marcus Paul in the morning. Friday, great to have you company. Marcus Paul in the morning. Remember the uh, you know the old debate and uh, <laughs> the arguments about smashed abo on toast and how certain generations should cut back on avocados because you know how how else could they afford to buy a property or save if they're forever you know down at a local cafe ordering smashed abo on toast? Well, it would appear that avocado is now cheaper than lettuce. Yep, avocado farmers, I love avocado by the way, 
Avocado farmers in Australia are pleading for shoppers to buy after a high oversupply. As cost of living pressures hit home, Aussie farmers are hoping that shoppers eat more smashed avo, which is finally cheaper. Okay, there we go. So a smashed avo on toast is no longer to blame for millennials struggling to purchase a home. The prices for the fruit has plummeted to as low as $1 each, and oversupply hits new highs. The supply for avocados has now outstripped demand across the country after growers planted hundreds of new trees within the past decade to satiate the once high demand. However, that's left over 800 farmers with a surplus of the popular fruit and struggling to make a profit. That's not good. It's an issue expected to stay for at least a year. It has prompted Avocados Australia's boss, John Tyus, to issue a plea for Australians to eat more of the fruit while it is cheap. He said the industry was going through growing pains as they desperately tried to lift the domestic and international intake of the fruit. He said over the last 12 months, we have seen a situation where supply has exceeded demand domestically. We've increased our exports, but we really need access to new large export markets. And that's taken a bit longer than we had hoped, as it's reliant on government negotiations, and that's been slow. So, we are in a situation with too many avocados for the mouths in Australia, and that's why we are seeing prices at the levels they are now. Wow. <laughs> I Like I say, I love avocado. If I have a salad... I make plenty at home. I always have to have an avocado in it. Beautiful. In 2016, you might recall, uh, demographer Bernard Salt made international headlines after he said the evils of hipster cafes were contributing to the woes of young people struggling to buy a first home. But his tongue-in-cheek take wasn't well received by many, especially the younger generation that he took aim at. He said, remember back then, he, well, he wrote it really, I've seen young people order smashed avocado with crumb feta on five grain toasted bread at $22 a pop and more. <laughs> However, despite the great debate, Mr. Tyus from the industry said Australia's love for avocados only stayed high. On average, we eat around four kilograms of avos per person. Really? Prices for Haas avocados at Coles, Woolies and Aldi range from $1.20 to $1.40. They're cheap. And while almost 80% of households ate the fruit, there was still room to grow. Well, look, if you haven't had avocado before, what are you thinking? You absolutely have to. And I do hope on behalf of uh, avocado farmers in the industry as a whole that the government can ensure that export markets, new export markets are opened up considering we have such a oversupply. Love and abo. Marcus Paul in the morning. You ain't heard nothing yet. Marcus Paul. 
All right, well, that's it for us today and us for this week. Thank you very much for your, uh, your time to listen to the program here on starterfm.com.au uh, on the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in, and if you're listening to us on the podcast, thank you very much. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. Uh, take it easy. I think the weather uh, throughout most of our areas uh, that tune in is pretty good. Uh, it's great to see a bit of sunshine. The end of La Nina as well, uh, we were told this week, which is good. And we've also had the winter solstice, which means longer days and, fingers crossed, warmer days with more sunshine on the cards. Mind you, we're not even anywhere near getting through winter yet. Okay, well, have a great weekend. Uh, there'll be plenty of content up on the Facebook page. As always, please give us a follow there, Marcus Paul in the morning. And if you wouldn't mind, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you would uh, also, um, if you wouldn't mind, you can subscribe to the Facebook page. Uh, and there'll be some extra content there in the coming days and weeks. Uh, that, though, will set you back $4 a month. Cup of coffee, really? Oh, and what about an avocado? Maybe I'll throw in an avocado as well. They're cheap. Take care. Bye now. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, goodies. This will get you the goodies.